I'm Jeremiah Adams-Prassel. I'm a professor of law at Oxford University, and I'm here with Professor Abby Adams-Prassel, who's a senior research fellow in the Department of Economics, also at Oxford University. And what we want to talk to you about today in the course of the next half hour or so is the labour market challenges that the COVID-19 crisis has brought. In particular, we'll be looking at data that Abby and colleagues have collected, and then I'll be talking about the legal implications of the kind of key developments that we're now seeing in labour markets. But before we get started with our talk proper, we've got a little task for you. So uh, just while I'm explaining the methodology behind all the data uh, that we'll talk you through today, for those of you who are listening live, if you could go to www.menti.com and enter the code 258064, there are a couple of questions on that slide that we great if you can answer and we'll then be able to kind of share some of the results from that online poll at the end of the talk. Um, but without further ado, um, so as Jeremiah said, we're going to be taking you through, if you like, kind of four facts that have ar arisen um, in uh, the current labour market crisis and what that means in terms of legal regulation. Now, the data that we're going to be drawing on is survey data that I've collected with my colleagues, Teodora Beneva, who's at the University of Zurich, Marta Golin, who's at the University of Oxford, and Christopher Rao at the University of Cambridge. Now, since late March, we've been we've collected three waves of survey data, interviewing nearly 30,000 workers across the US, the UK and Germany in a bid to better understand what the labour market effects of the virus and of the containment measures have been, particularly with an eye of trying to understand inequality and the impact of these various measures and of this crisis across different groups in society. Now, the first, if you like, fact that we'd like to talk to you about today is that is the fact that not all workers have been affected equally by the current shutdown measures. And one of the things that we found particularly striking is the fact that workers on different types of employment relationships have been affected to differing degrees. Now, what these bars give you are for our first survey wave, this is just the amount, um, th th these are the proportion in our sample of people who um, were earning less money than usual, um, you know, because of the COVID shutdown measures. And this is so in, in late March. So what we can see in the height of the bars here gives you, yeah, the kind of the proportion of people under different types of arrangements where the different bars give you these different natures of the employment contracts. Now, if we just look at the UK, where the relationship is particularly strong, what we see is that on the left handmost bar, this blue bar, so these represent people who are self-employed. What we can see is that a huge number, a huge proportion of the self-employed reported falls in their earnings um, as lockdown kind of came into effect. Now, if you move to the right-hand side of the bar, what we see is that individuals who are on permanent jobs, people who were paid salaries as opposed to being paid by the hour, and workers who had fixed schedules rather than, for example, in the UK, being on a zero-hours contract where employers are able to vary your contract. So these people on secure work arrangements have like, experienced much less, um, much less uh, significant negative effects than those than the self-employed, for example. 
But what we think is particularly interesting is that self-employed, if you look at those who are earning less money, people who are working less hours, people who have lost their jobs, had to close their businesses, it's really the self-employed um, who are answering our survey who look most similar to those on insecure work arrangements, as opposed to, if you like, the cleavage being between the self-employed and those who are employees. And that matters from a labour market regulation perspective, because the law treats these categories completely differently. So the very first thing we teach in any kind of class on labour market regulation, on employment or labour law, on social security, even on tax law, is what we call the binary divide. So we take, as lawyers, the entire labour market, and we split it on the one hand into the employed, who are subject to control by a boss, but who in return for that get various legal and statutory protections, and the self-employed. And the idea behind the self-employed being those are the real entrepreneurs, the people who go out and fend for themselves, have all the benefits of that entrepreneurship, but also crucial in return, don't get any of the kind of protection that comes associated with employment. And what we've seen for a long time is that actually that binary divide has caused a lot of problems. Think, for example, about the lawsuits you see around misclassification of workers in the gig economy or other work arrangements before them. Think about issues surrounding zero hours contract work or other forms of precarious work all over the world. And what we've seen is that in crises, often labour market recovery following it has actually created more of these kind of small self-employment kind of jobs, more of these flexible kind of jobs. And yet what has happened is that from a legal perspective, those categories keep being treated very, very differently. Not just in employment law, also in a lot of, though not all jurisdictions we look at in social security and particularly also in terms of tax law. For example, whether it's the employer who has to pay tax or whether it's a self-employed worker herself who has to make declarations, but also in terms of things like deductions or even differential tax rate across different categories. So from a legal perspective, what you should be seeing is a big difference between the blue bar on the far left, the self-employed, and everybody else. But instead, as Abby's already pointed out, what we're seeing in reality is actually that all those people who are on what we would broadly speaking call various forms of precarious work, zero hours, lack of fixed schedules, short-term kind of work, are actually in an economic situation much, much closer to the self-employed. And so the question then is, from a labour market perspective, what can we learn here? Well, first of all, that this very stark differential treatment between the self-employed and the employed might not actually be the cleverest way of managing a labour market. Indeed, in the UK, we've got it even worse, because at least in employment law, we haven't just got a binary divide, we've even got three categories in employment law that then don't properly match onto the binary system in tax law, creating all sorts of perverse incentives where people try to be workers for employment law, but then end up being pushed into self-employment for tax law purposes. And actually, it's interesting that across the policy sphere, and then even, I think, across a lot of the civil service, there's huge agreement that the way of dealing with that would actually be to level out the treatment. But so far, what we've seen is a huge political pushback a sort of you know, tax on the entrepreneur, a tax on in the UK, infamous in the past, the, the white van man who suddenly would be subject to this additional cost. But actually from a policy perspective, as we now see in terms of the impact of COVID, that would make a lot of sense.
And so it's interesting that going forward, very quickly after support for the employed was uh, introduced, the government came under huge pressure domestically in the UK to also introduce similar support arrangements for the self-employed. And it was very interesting to note that in announcing that new scheme, the Chancellor at that point made it very clear that actually in the long run, the taxation and, and national insurance and similar aspects might too end up being leveled out. Now, um, one key um, employment benefit that has a really like a shot a spotlight has really been shone on over the course of the crisis um, is that of sick pay. So, in the United Kingdom, we have statutory sick pay, um, but employers can choose to top up. Um, employees provision and beyond the statutory minimum which amounts to about 19 pounds a week. In the United States you have variation across states in the degree to which workers um, who are sick can actually take paid time, time off. Um, so in our survey because we were so we were interested actually about what is this degree to which like a kind of a precarious employment contract and actually going to work while still sick then potentially actually perpetuating the pandemic. Um, we asked individuals both about the degree to which they had um, additional sick pay um, in place beyond any statutory minimum. And we also asked about whether they would go to work with a cold or light fever. So the kind of typical coronavirus symptoms. And so what these graphs show um, is firstly the proportion of workers in different occupations that say they don't have any additional sick pay. So each bar here is a different occupation. The height, so the higher the bar, the larger of the proportion of workers um, who, act, who, who just have um, either no sick pay or the very ungenerous statutory minimum which might be available. And so what we can see is that Actually, there's a large proportion of individuals, more in the US and the UK, who don't have any further uh, pay, who don't have any access to, sick, to paid sick pay. The other thing which we're trying to highlight in this in, the, in these graphs is actually in what types of jobs is it that in that a higher proportion of people don't have access to these types of like to sick pay. And so what we have here in the red bars, these are occupations which are so-called high physical proximity occupations. Okay, so they're occupations where workers are coming into contact with lots of individuals on a daily basis. And the way that we calculate that is through um, the so-called ONET measure of physical proximity. So the fact that the red bars are more to the right in both graphs shows you that in occupations where fewer workers have paid sick pay, workers are also coming into like a, a lot of physical contact with other individuals, which is not gonna be great in terms of the spread of the virus. So again, if we just focus on the UK graph for a second, so uh, the bar to the furthest right, so that's the, the occupation with the highest number of individuals without access to additional paid sick leave is personal care and service. So over 50% of workers in this occupation ha don't have any access to further sick pay. Now, what's this relationship I was saying between having access to sick pay and going out and, and, and still working when sick? Well, what we find is 
43% of those who don't have say, say, uh, paid sick leave said that they would continue to work with a cold or light fever. Now that's 39% higher than workers who have paid sick leave. So what we can see is that workers who don't have paid sick leave are more likely, say they're more likely to keep going to work and they typically end up in occupations which um, they could end up infecting many more people. So here we have actually the employment benefits, provision of employment benefits can also provide potentially a public health, out, uh, kind of a public health end. And again, that's a story that's really important from a labour market regulation perspective. Because what we've seen a lot in debates, particularly in regards to the gig economy, but also more generally in labour market regulation in past years, is that employment protection has been portrayed frequently as the real antithesis of consumer welfare. This idea that employment law provides red tape, health and security is expensive, and that actually consumers are the ones who end up suffering if we provide protection to workers. And what we see here so starkly in these numbers is that actually employment protection does not just protect workers, though that's obviously a laudable end in and of itself, but also it has huge implications in terms of broader consumer welfare. Now, you can think of examples where this goes far beyond just mere health and safety. Think of vicarious liability, for example. If you get hit by a car driven by an employee, a doctrine called vicarious liability and similar variations across different jurisdictions will mean that you're protected because you can go against the employer. On the other hand, if you've got a self-employed worker and something happens to you in the course of their delivery or their job, you as an individual will only have recourse against the individual worker who chances are will not be in a good position to stand up for them. And I think what we see with coronavirus now is that actually, again, that stark divide and particularly the pushing of people who are economically dependent, who are subordinate into fake self-employment, ends up creating a system of perverse incentives that is harmful to the worker, but is also actually harmful to anybody who ends up consuming a product brought by her or somehow involved in the service delivery chain. So again, the level playing field of ensuring tight employment law protection, not just a question of workers' rights, also much more broadly, a question of decent market regulation and health and safety for all of us. Now, one fact that we found particularly striking uh, when analysing um, our data um, is the gender differences that you can see in labour market outcomes. Now, this is a very different recession to, for example, the Great Recession following the financial crisis. So usually recessions are good for gender equality. So typically male dominated industries get hit harder. So think construction, think manufacturing. However, given the nature of the containment measures that we're seeing in this crisis, it's actually female dominated industries which are being hit harder. And on top of that, we also have the closure of schools and thus this very kind of unusual relationship between a labour market crisis and changes in childcare responsibilities. Now, what we find when we look into have men and women been more or less likely to lose their, to keep their jobs. Uh, so in the UK, we've also got a short time work kind of furlough scheme Have women, men and women been equally likely to be furloughed. What we find is that women have been more likely to lose their job 
and conditional, and even if they've kept their job, they're more likely to have been furloughed and so be working zero hours than men. Now, what's striking is that this is not just because men and women do different types of jobs, as I was describing, that women tend to work in industries which might have got hit harder. Even if we look at men and women who are doing the same types of jobs, so they're in the same occupation, the same industry, we get the same significant effect that women have been more likely to lose their job, more likely to be furloughed. We also find that, so in the UK in this furlough scheme, we also have information on the degree to which uh, wages are topped up beyond the degree to which uh, the government subsidises. So in the UK, it's 80%. We also find that, again, controlling for these kind of job characteristics, women have been less likely to have their wages topped up than men. So what could be going on here? So, I mean, the first thing is that this is something which I think is crucial when we think about the recovery um, and kind of long-term impacts on gender um, equality. Um, but as I said, there's this very kind of unusual relationship between the labour market and childcare going on at the moment. So in the graph on this, um, uh, on, on this slide, what you can see in our survey um, is we asked people about how much time on a typical workday were they spending um, on active childcare and on homeschooling children. And here the red bars give you the number of hours for women and the blue bars give you the number of hours for men. And this is, um, these are um, in April, okay? So this is the level in April. So what we can see is that whilst homeschooling responsibilities seem to be kind of shared more or less equally between men and women, women are still doing a lot more active childcare than men. And when we, when we look at, okay, so, and tell us how this compares to the amount of childcare that you were doing in February, yes, it's true that men are doing much more childcare than they were doing before the crisis, but women, despite having started at a higher level, uh, they've increased their amount of childcare by even more. Okay, so what we see, at least in the UK, is a widening in the gender gap of childcare, and this is for working parents um, here. Um, over the course of the crisis. What's the problem for labour market regulation? Well, the traditionally, at least historically, the focus of equality law in the workplace has very much been on the employer responsibility. And comparisons have always been drawn legally, at least historically, within the workplace. So to put this in more stark terms, if an individual employer chooses to pay her female, wage, female workers wages only at furlough level, but to top up her male workers level, that's obviously illegal and employment law can deal with that. However, given, for example, occupational segregation of different jobs, given the fact that different employers might treat different workers differently, this single employer focus of equality law really struggles. And actually, even though we have a very sophisticated regulatory apparatus, it might actually be under-inclusive. And so indeed, there's then interesting questions about how to broaden out equality law, whether it's, for example, through a public sector equality duty, or whether there's other measures that are required. And also, I think it's really, really important, particularly, again, looking at the graphs of homeschooling, for example, and childcare, that labour market policies coming out of the crisis, or at least, I think it's better to say at this stage, moving into the next stage of the crisis, cannot be done in isolation from other policies. 
So for example, a very concrete uh, point to make is that any kind of changes, any kind of phasing out of a furlough scheme that protects workers at home has to be very closely coordinated with the reopening of schools, nurses, creches, other children's educational institutions. Because otherwise, you're going to end up creating a scenario where workers cannot stay at home, cannot be furloughed, but at the same time cannot send their children to schools. And then those graphs you're seeing today would actually look pretty good in comparison to the kind of impacts you might see if different kind of regulatory policies are not taken in close coordination and sort of in close lockstep with each other. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, um, I think another novel and hugely important feature of the current crisis is this role of the ability to work from home. So it seems kind of trivial to say that of course, people who have been able to work from home more have been much less likely to lose their job and have suffered much less economically than those who find it much more difficult to work from home. And this is um, a, a, like a very striking and incredibly strong pattern than in, that in my work we found holds across the US, the UK and Germany. This is interesting, especially in the case of Germany, because Germany's actually suffered much less job loss overall, but even those that, you know, jobs that have been lost are disproportionately in, uh, like amongst workers um, who, who can't do all of their job from home. Now, of course, different occupations, different industries lend themselves to, um, work, to, to uh, being more or less able to work from home. What we see if we actually look at you know, the characteristics of workers and who is it who's more or less able to work from home, we see striking differences across the income distribution. So working from home, in another way of saying it, is a very regressive uh, kind of ability, a very regressive right. So what these graphs show you is by income groups. Um, so each bar gives you a different income by 2019 gross income. So this is pre-corona income at the individual level. And the height of the bars tell you what proportion of people's jobs who, was, who were earning that much last year, what proportion of their jobs did they think they would be able to do from home? So what we have is that those earning, you know, in the UK, less than £20,000, think they can do approximately 25% of their jobs, less than 25% of their jobs from home. Whereas if you go right up to the other end of the income scale, so individuals earning £70,000 um, a year plus, we have that they think they can do over 60% of their jobs from home on average. Okay, and this is a pattern that we find holds very, very strongly, like it's a very close coordination across countries. So one thing, um, uh, so as we asked you at the beginning, what we wanted to know was, you know, like to kind of, uh, so ask the people who are on this call, to what degree do they think they could do their jobs from home? So we asked two questions on that mentee slide. Um, so, what we can see is that of the people who are listening to this webinar, and this also includes some individuals um, who uh, we've given kind of similar talks to over the past couple of days. So people listening in right now, 
we think we can do about 90% of our jobs from home. But if I ask, you know, so what do you think the average person can do from home in that people tend to think around 44%. So in terms of, yes, this is quite right. The people who, you know, academics, individuals who are actually, you know, engaging with this talk online, we can do many, many more tasks of our, many more tasks from home than most workers in the economy. So actually people on this call are a little bit more optimistic. So it's actually just around 40% of uh, people's jobs that on average can be done that people think from home. So what does that mean for labor market regulation? What we've seen is various suggestions of introducing going forward some sort of right to work from home. The United Kingdom, for example, we already have the right to request flexible working, where an employer can ask her employee, sorry, an employee can ask her employer to be allowed to work from home, to work flexibly. And the idea is now that that right could be extended to actually allow people to work from home. And whilst that sounds superficially as a really interesting and good idea, actually, when we look more closely at the data, it becomes very problematic. First, and sort of politically, I think most importantly, as Abbasoja pointed out, it would be a hugely regressive right. It would be a right that would only benefit a very certain slice of the labour market rather than workers across the board. Even more fundamentally, though, I think while it's very easy in principle to introduce this right to work from home, and it might even sound attractive to a lot of workers, or at least it might have sounded attractive before we all have to go and work from home for months on end. Actually, in technical legal terms, it will be very difficult to work out. Again, because the legal regulation of the world of work has centered on the employer as the person responsible for a lot of duties. So think, for example, about health and safety in the workplace. It's very obvious in most jurisdictions that when it comes to health and safety at work, whether it's preventing accidents, preventing stress, preventing strains, making sure there's proper equipment available, making sure reasonable accommodations are taken for people with disabilities or other special needs. Well, how would that work in the home? Is it the employer's duty to provide all her workforce with standing desks and ergometric chairs, for example? But again, also lots of other rights are very much conditioned on work in a given workplace at a fixed time. Think about working time, for example. How would the law apply to people working from home when, as you've seen from Abbey's data already, actually people are working a lot more than they used to before? And on top of that, there's a strongly gendered impact of that. How can traditional working time that, say, limits work in a factory or in an office to 40 or 45 or 48 hours a week, how can those limits be translated into a world when we're working from home? So those are just two examples, but I think it's really important that when we think sort of about this, at first glance, very superficially attractive right to work from home, actually, both in terms of its socioeconomic impact and in terms of its legal realisation, various traps lie ahead. And that, I think, it is is it for us today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. If you have any questions, you'd like to follow up anything, please find us on Twitter at Abby C. Adams and at Jeremiah Prussell. For now, thank you very much indeed and have a lovely week ahead. <laughs>